Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening or watching. Today I've got Tim and David from the band Junkyard. And Junkyard is another one of those bands that came out of the late 80s that's underrated, in my opinion. Uh, they did have some minor success on MTV and radio, uh, but I think more people should know who this band is, and hence why I'm having them on the show. Uh, they have some interesting connections with rock and punk bands, including Guns N' Roses, Jane's Addiction, uh, Mother Love Bone, uh, The Black Crows, Bad Religion. And, you know, just like any rock band, there are highs and lows, and you'll hear all about that in this episode. Welcome, David and Tim from Junkyard uh, to the Chuck Shoe Podcast. So what I'd like to do um, is just uh, tell the story, basically, of Junkyard. Uh, for people who have no idea who Junkyard is, but also for diehard fans, hopefully they're going to learn something as well. Um, does that sound good to you guys? Sounds good. Sure. Yeah, so tell me the story. Um, I know, David, you're from Austin, but how did everyone meet initially and form the band? Well, I had a garage rock band in Austin in 86, and um, me and the drummer had decided to move to L.A., and then the guitar player decided he wanted to go. So the three of us uh, went out there and um, at the end of 86, and started looking around, uh, trying to get our, you know, sea legs. And we ran into Chris Gates, who I had known from Austin. Um, he had been uh, there about a year previous, uh, trying to get a band together. So we had that connection. And um, about two weeks after we landed in L.A., we hooked up with Chris and kind of informally started the band how did you Definitely. get uh, Brian Baker in? Because he was, who would later go on to be in Bad Religion, but he was in a band called Minor Threat, who people who aren't familiar with the punk scene, I mean, that was like kind of a big punk band back in the day, right? So he kind of had a little bit of a household name, I mean, or some recognition. Yeah, they were kind of a big deal. Um, Chris Gates had a relationship with uh, Brian Baker from the punk scene. You know, it was a very communal type deal back then. Um, so when big boys that was chris's band they were on tour uh they would in dc they'd hook up with uh minor thread then when minor threat would come through uh texas they would hook up with the big boys hmm. and um oh. so they had that background and um by the time we got signed we knew we needed a to replace a guitar player somebody with more chops and oh. um by happenstance chris ran into brian baker like literally the day we were deciding to start looking for someone, oh, huh. met him at a seven 11 and said, Hey, uh, we need a guitar player. You want to check it out? And he said, yes. And that's how it all came. Together. Yeah. Well, you got a record deal. It's everybody wants to be in your band. But so before you guys got signed, you, you were actually started out as a cover band and you got this reputation at the, the Sunday night sound check or whatever, the open mics as being kind of a crazy wild party band. What kind of songs covers were you doing? Was it, the classic rock stuff like ACDC or was it more the punk or a mix? Well, I would say it was a cover band only in the sense that we just started, you know, we'd only met a few weeks earlier. So, you know, uh, yeah, the sound check was a cool little dive bar that had a Sunday night open mic thing and lots of cool people ended up there jamming. Um, but you know, we hadn't really rehearsed as a band or started writing new material or anything. So we just, did covers. I think we did uh, Mississippi Queen and uh, 
probably some ACDC and ZZ Top, you know, just something we could all latch okay. onto easily. Sure. And then, so is, is this true? You guys opened for Jane's Addiction and Green River, which Green River would later basically turn into Pearl Jam, right? Right. Yeah. Well, there was a place in uh, um, L.A. at the time off of the Sunset Strip, off of that whole scene, uh, it was a place called Scream and they, it was a huge building and they had two or three stages or two, two or three different, um, yeah, levels. It was a huge place. It was in a ho- uh, an old hotel or something, I believe. But um, the woman who booked it, Dale Gloria, who was our first manager, she booked lots of different bands. So she'd mix it up. There was like goth and cow punk and rock and roll uh, and everything, everything went. You know, it was all, it wasn't uh, too denominational. It was not just one genre of music. It was two or three kind of things happening. It was a scene. And uh, yeah, Jane's Addiction, uh, we played with them. Uh, Green River played there. Uh, all, you know, Guns N' Roses played at the Scream. Uh, lots of great bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you guys, what's that? No, you got it. Uh, you guys, speaking of Guns N' Roses, you guys also, you opened for Guns N' Roses. And I love this. So you used to give away shirts, which is really smart, especially back in the day before internet to get your name out there. You gave the shirt away. So then people are basically advertising for you and Axl Rose got one. And there's a picture of him wearing a junkyard t-shirt. And I think I, I saw one of slash wearing one as well. Yeah, we've got, you know, quite a handful of uh, prominent people who've worn the shirt. Yeah. It's uh, that, uh, that particular incident with Axel, uh, we actually happened to, um, Chris had some, um, silk screening background. So he shot a screen and we made t-shirts, um, at home and we had a gig that night, uh, the night that we pressed a bunch of shirts and we took them down there to, for promotion, you know, to give them away. Mm -hmm. And Axel was there and Duff and I think Slash was there. I can't believe, but you know, two or three of the guys were there and, um, we did a nice boys. Uh, uh, cover a nice voice, a tattoo, a rose tattoo song. And Axel came up and sang with us. And uh, yeah, we gave him a shirt that night. And I think he had a photo shirt the next day. And I, I don't think he changed that shirt for two or three days. And, uh, <laughs> I think we so, did like a couple of prime photo shoots and a, and a live show. Were they? And, uh, yeah, you can't buy that kind of. That's amazing. Yeah. So were they, were they as big of a band back then before they, you know, obviously got on MTV and the record label, like even just locally, I heard you say, I think faster pussycat was maybe the bigger band at the time before, you know, both of those bands got uh, record deals. I don't know. Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses. When I hit the ground here in 86, they were by far. Yeah. They ruled it. They were the most talked about band. They had myth already. And they didn't even have a record out yet. They were mythological almost. Like they were the shit in Hollywood. It took a little longer for America to catch up or the rest yeah, of the world. Right. And I think the thing were, is initially no with Pussycat album and Guns Rose album almost came out within weeks of each other. And initially it seemed, Pussycat came out of the gates a little faster. Okay. It seemed like yeah. us. Like they got more national exposure. It seemed like, oh, it's Pussycat, you know, because Guns N' Roses were maybe seen, we thought, like, that might just be too dark for America. Uh, you know, Pussycat had a much more straight head rock and roll thing. Like, maybe that's that Pussycat led themselves more to the poison. Yeah, yeah, a little poppier. They were, be- they were on paper better looking, I guess. You know, <laughs> yeah. Brother and shit. So, so but Tim. But Guns N' Roses 
was the biggest thing. Okay. Seen, yeah, because that's what I thought. Because I, I heard even um, Tracy Guns tell the story about, I don't know if people know the story, how it was L.A. Guns uh, with Tracy Guns and then Axl Rose, Hollywood Rose, and they merged the two bands, came up with Guns N' Roses. And I was heard Tracy telling the story about how he was in Guns N' Roses and then it got like to a point where I think they were living with Axel. And then it got to a point where he wasn't really even talking to Axel anymore. And that's when he kind of realized like, Oh, he's like this, he's getting too big. Like, it's just, he's, you know, he's getting too much attention even before they really got took off. It, like locally, I think they were, they were the thing. So that, that just confirms what I've heard. There from- are stories. I mean, I didn't know them well. David knew them a lot better, but you'd hear stories about individual guys in that band getting up to whatever behavior they were doing and all these things. They were legendary. Like, yeah. You did not want to leave your girlfriend in a room, you know, because all the chicks <laughs> loved them. <laughs> of course. Girlfriend. Yeah. I mean, they were just voracious. And so like, they yeah. would, and if they came somewhere, they'd cut a swath through the room with, I mean, it was all real appetite for destruction. That's a really apt title. You were, they had a reputation that I've yeah. never seen the band have before. For sure. Did you guys watch the uh, Axl Rose uh, Reels biography channel uh, thing? I haven't. Oh I haven't. my God. Yeah. It's so good. I'll have to send that to you. But so yeah, Tim, explain to me, um, I know you didn't join the band until 2000, but were you in the scene back then or were you guys, were you friends with the band or what was? Yeah, I think, I think David and Chris were some of the first people. I landed in Hollywood in fall of 86 with a bunch of guys from DC. Okay. And um, I think we all kind of lived in the same shitty East Hollywood area within blocks of each other. And so people who are transplants tend to find each other. And um, somehow we came across Chris Gates, you know, probably being from D.C. because that kind of gives you some kind of cachet because of the punk thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting to know Chris and David really early. And then I was in a band and they were very quick to give us opening slots. And so the band that I was in called Broken Glass that formed pretty soon after that came up under Junkyard and they would give us shows. And Brian Baker was a DC guy and he was, we were running together when he joined Junkyard. Too. Okay. So we were tight then. And so there was always that connection as well. You know, various members. We all worked Tim, on Tim was in the thread very early on. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, we were all in each other's pockets. That's cool. Really starting from 80s, the late 80s, like either living with each other or spending many evenings hanging out, playing on the same shows, sharing road crew. I mean, fill in the blank. Okay. You know, so, yeah. So, walk me through this time in the late 80s the Hollywood sunset strip. I'm just so fascinated by this time. Like I, you know, I've seen the movie, the dirt obviously, and I've read about, I've heard it in so many interviews, but I just thought, I want to hear your take on what was it like for you guys back in those days? I mean, you you mentioned a little bit guns and roses, faster pussycat. Who else were you hanging out with? What other memories do you have? Like paint a picture for me? Cause I love hearing these kind of stories. Well, I I think you were, you agree with Dave, Dave agree that we didn't do the strip. It was like a whole different world. We were, we were in our little, bubble in East Hollywood and we played these divey places in East Hollywood and it was a much more eclectic scene you know if you played the strip you had to be one kind of thing and we were all kind of doing different stuff believe it or not there was not a lot of hedge money like you know 
they were different bands. Saints Addiction is very different from Junkyard, which is very different from this and on down right. the line. And so the East Hollywood clubs were open to that. So you could play on a bill with X and then have LA Guns on from that stuff happened a lot back then. Huh. And I like that. I didn't want to have to, we didn't, I didn't get into this business to fucking fit in with somebody <laughs> on the script trying to sell pre-sale tickets. Right. But I do say, you know, East Hollywood and the clubs like the screen, these underground clubs that were not really even advertised. It was all a very word of mouth. It was a huge scene. It was, you could it was sell, the local bands were scene. selling out, they were selling out venues as unsigned acts on a Saturday night. Barry, you know, I, my band broke glass. We would sell out a venue on a Saturday night. At a twenty dollar ticket, once we got popular, so it was the same really thing that we came out of in East Hollywood spawned the uh, bands like Green River and um, Thelonious Monster and um, uh, Jane's Addiction. It, it was it was like Tim said, it was eclectic. It was, um, but there were a lot of very relevant bands mm-hmm. in that scene. Guns That's and Roses a, was yeah. very much a part of it. Yeah, they, they were, were very much a part of the East Hollywood band. band. I yeah. So, yeah. And it was, you know, there's lots of craziness and, you know, it, it was a Hollywood at the time was really free, meaning like it was sort of dangerous. And Disneyland for adults. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And that's a good description. In reverse, like the cops never seemed to bother you. They were more interested in gangs in South Central. Okay. And we would drive around in beater cars with our crazy clothes on going to these shitty clubs. And they didn't seem to really bother with us very much. We lived in rent was very cheap. Hmm. We would That's crazy because now it's probably through the roof in in LA anywhere. You can't have a good music scene with expensive rent, you know. Yeah, that's, that's when, true. You, you never hear about New York anymore because it's too expensive to live there, and Hollywood's probably in that same place now. That's a but good then point. It was very very cheap, and it was unleaded gas that cost sixty five cents a gallon, so you could you know rehearsals were six to eight dollars an hour for a rehearsal room. Like it was. Hmm. And He's embellishing a little bit. Yeah, no, it, it sounds it, it sounds cool to be uh, like surrounded by like-minded people and all musicians. And it sounds like from the stories I've heard, everyone was pretty cool with each other. Like everyone was kind of friends, right? I mean, there wasn't was there any rivalries like where certain bands didn't like each other or anything like that? That was strip yeah. stuff. Yeah, had to be. That was strip I mean, stuff. Strip yeah. stuff. Okay. I mean, you found your core guys. Like, I think, you know, I hope for Junkyard a lot. Junkyard probably found guys that they liked as friends, you know, because you end up sharing gear and all that mm-hmm. other kind of stuff. So you end up bands that are like-minded start cohabitating right. on bands and in apartments, you know? Okay. So you start to build your own, you know, Junkyard was probably the biggest, that batch that was that post Guns N' Roses, faster LA Guns. They were kind of the first ones out of the gate with James a little bit behind them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Junkyard got signed. They were one of the, probably the first. I mean, I don't think the Guns N' Roses record had come out when, when Junkyard got signed, or hmm. it was very close to that. Okay. And, uh, so it wasn't like it was a scene that had been proven. I mean, no yeah. one was really convinced that Jane's Addiction was going to be popular. I didn't. I thought they were all too. I thought all of it was too weird. I was <laughs> all these fans were getting yeah. record deals. They're so talented, yeah. though. So much talent. So, so yeah, back to Junkyard. So that first album produced by Tom Worman, who produced Motley, all the Motley Crue albums. And uh, I don't know if you guys read this uh, review in All Music. It says, incorporates elements of Southern rock, boogie-woogie, and ACDC-ism into a compact sound. Pretty cool. And then, you know, the singles Hollywood and Simple Man. I mean, some great songs. And I just, you know, I listen to that record still 30 years later, and it still sounds good to me. Do you guys agree? You, is, there, is there anyone that doesn't like that record? I hear well, that people still listen to it 30 years 
after the fact. And that says a lot. I mean, it says that we didn't pigeonhole ourselves. We didn't um, write for that era. We just wrote songs. So hopefully it had some longevity. No, I think we it. Uh, we play most of that album live, but we are still a large part. We still, and it works. So, yeah. I mean, it's good to test. It just works. The songs are good. The yeah. writing was solid. Absolutely. That's really the key. The good song, really good songwriting, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's held up. I mean, we're, we're still playing it all the time. Yeah, I think so. And then you guys, so at this time you did a, you did some shows with Dangerous Toys. And then, um, but the, the crazy one to me is a, the, the tour with Black Crows. And they opened for you guys. Did you guys think that they were going to, when you're listening to these songs, I think that record, maybe it had just come out or hadn't come out yet. Did you think that was going to blow up as big as it did? I wasn't sure. Um, I, 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 before the tour started, I got the album and I listened to it and I said, wow, these guys are cool. Uh, you know, they had something, you know, they were a breed apart from what was going on at the time, really. And um, about halfway through the tour, we started seeing them really getting an audience. Uh, so the writing was on the wall. Yeah, no, that's going to do big things. Absolutely. And, yeah, no, it was great. And you guys had a couple of music videos and then that second album, six of sevens and nines. Um, so you had that single all the time in the world. I think that's your highest like charting uh, song for whatever that's worth. It's the most popular song that way. Do you think that's your best song that you you guys have ever made? No, I don't. Uh, I think it's a good song. I think the um, the video was kind of the turning point with our relationship with Geffen, mm. where they kind of tried to pretty us up and um, right. You know, whatever, make us more palatable for the uh, mainstream rock audience. And you know, we play the song today, and I I like it better now than I did then. But I think. Uh, my feeling was that we were, it was the, the beginning of starting to succumb to the Geffen's pressure of like being a little more polished and cleaned up. So is that what I, they wanted you to do? So, cause you know, it seemed like it was kind of a flooded market at the time for the, for, for rock bands. I mean, cause I was. like for right now, I feel like I host this podcast and I feel like every day there's a new podcast. I mean, I think this is your, your guys's third interview you've done this week and so people just don't have enough time to listen to all these podcasts. I'm assuming it was the same back in the day with rock bands. Like people could have some favorites, but I mean, they can't even keep up with all the bands that were coming out. Did you, was there ever a, a, a strategy to maybe try to stand out or to, to change your look to be different or, or did you guys ever talk about that or changing the no, sound? I think we always felt like we were different. You know, we didn't look like everybody else. We didn't sound like everybody else. I think that was just a natural occurrence. You know, we didn't seek out to, to separate ourselves. I think you, we just were naturally. So you didn't want to go like more punk though. Cause that's like, what's interesting too, is that you guys have all those punk uh, influences or at least some, right? Well, I think that the, the album that we were trying to do for Geffen the, the third time around, we were starting to implement some of the, um, some of our punk roots to an extent. You know, still keeping it. I mean, it's all junkyard to me. Yeah. Whether it sounds Southern or like ACDC or, you know, all, you know, punk rock, whatever. It's just junkyard. Mm -hmm. It always has been. It always will be. Yeah. So that album, is that, that the, is that the one that's called Old Habits Die Hard? 
Yes. Old head. Is Go that ahead, okay? So I listened to that on Spotify. Is that is that demos or is that the the, the finished product? Because it sounded pretty good to me. I, I don't know, but I I thought I read something about you guys were unhappy with the. What's that? It was a great team. Yeah. That, that produced the, the those demos. Back then, I mean, those are on paper demos, but they were 24-track, two-inch, at a big, fancy Hollywood studio demos. Okay. budgets were back then. They would never, obviously, do it in your living room now. Yeah. But so I, that's where I kind of came in. So I have a little more insight. I was brought in. I was brought in. Um, we were writing together for that record. So I okay. kind of started writing with the band then. And that was probably the beginning of my most formal involvement with the band, which was, what, 92? Yep. Yeah, because my yeah, band I've okay. been signed and dropped and was that, you know, so um, there's songs on there that David and I would, you know, cause we hung out all the time. We would eventually guitars would come out and we'd sit around and try and come up with songs or we'd toss stuff around. So I was there for that. And the demos were done at nice studios with big fans. That's why it sounds so good. They, mm -hmm. People wouldn't spend that much money on a record now. They're just, oh, but yeah. So old habits die hard is us taking all the demos that had been bootlegged and sold in various that had kind of gotten out there and people been asking for, mm. and we never felt we're really, it was, it was too diffuse and all over the place. So we finally said, let's put a bow on it and create a version that we all feel is good. You know, I felt like I could have a stake in it too, because I helped write it and like, let's pick the best 11 songs out of the, whatever there were 20 plus and make a freestanding, um, record of all that stuff. So we can kind of put it in its place. Like here's what that third record was you know, probably going to be about. Okay. So it does sound good because it was recorded. Yeah. Back. Did you have to buy this it? Was years. This was years before Tim was actually a member of the band. Sure. But that's yeah. how far back his, his, you know, involvement. Yeah. Did it, you guys have to buy it back from Geffen or, or was it? No, they just, they let they you have never, it. They were never, it was never official release. So okay. Was, you know, oh, yeah, because it's demos. You're right. Good call. Right. So then the bands drop by Geffen and you guys break up. So what did every, everybody do? I know Brian Baker, he joined Bad Religion, which is really cool. What did everyone else do? I think, uh, did Patrick have another band or? Me and Pat kind of, well, after a couple of years, me and Pat got in a band called Sucker Punch and we got signed to um, MCA Universal, whatever it was, and did that for a couple of years and hmm. put out an album for them. He played in a few other bands. And then he, and then we all kind of. David had another band. Um, everyone kind of had a band called Barasho with uh, Joe Dog from Dogs Do More, and Bam, their drummer. Okay, so the, so a then great band, but the wrong time. Sure, sure. So then there, you know, there's a hiatus, but and then I think it's is it '99 when you guys was this the first show back you opened for the Super Suckers at the House of that Blues? Was, yeah. Like, how yeah. did that reformation happen? Phone call? Um, yeah, I think someone called and said, Eddie Spaghetti hears that Junkyard is back together. Is that true? I And I think we're like, no. And at this point, we had never heard that, but didn't kind of put a, you know, and he says, well, would they want to open for us at the House of Blues? Like, And by this point, Brian was in Bad Religion full time. And yeah. so that's when I came in to play Brian's parts, in essence. And so, so, yeah, that was the first show Okay. Back. So Eddie Spaghetti from Super Suckers was a fan of Junkyard. Yes. Oh, that's yeah. really cool. And then you guys did a tour of uh, Japan, and then like a couple years later, you ended up opening for Twisted Sister. And so then you're kind of back, like at that point. I mean, you're doing shows, maybe not full time, but 
Yeah, we're we're kind of a summer vacation kind of thing, like a trip to Spain, or and then a couple, maybe some local shows. You know, when um, you know we did a couple year Spanish tours, and um, there was a Japanese subsequent tour. after the the uh, it was a two day festival in Jerez, Spain. Uh, that's the show that we opened for Twisted Sister, but it sort of kind of reintroduced us. Yeah. You know, yeah. And then because you, you guys did and then you've done some of the like the festivals. Did you ever do one of the cruises? That that always looks so fun to do one of those we things. We did do the cruise. We have yeah. done a cruise. We did it, yeah. I don't know, three or four years ago, whenever that was. Yeah. Yeah, I want to do one of those. We've done, we've done a few of those kind of like eight, you know, we've done M three and you know, we do we do odds and ends of that stuff too. As usual, we're kind we're kind of uh, sometimes we stick out a bit at those things, which is also nice too, because like I think we we find that we get fans out of those things because we're a bit of a palate cleanser, as it were. We're different, and I think you know people like that. So yeah, no, we're absolutely. always kind of like reticent to be lumped in with any big genre. It's, it is what it is, but we do seem to get find new people who've maybe heard of us and had never seen us back, and you know haven't seen the original band back in the day. And we tour sporadically enough that it's hard to get to see us. That we do get exposed to people who hadn't, who maybe were fans of the song Hollywood back in '89, and have now circled back because our demographic is at the point where they're able to have, they have disposable income because their kids are growing up, that kind of thing. Yeah, so, you know, absolutely. A, a I think we're confident enough with our material where we are that we can, we can hang with all those bands. Yeah, no. And it's, I think, do you think it's good in a way that um, I know bands don't like Spotify and YouTube and all that, but in a way it's good because people can go back and discover you. Whereas before, like, I mean, you kind of had to make a choice and you're kind of a lot of times you're buying an album kind of on blind faith. Maybe you heard one song and you're like, well, I hope I like this right now. And everyone can listen. And if they they don't like it, they move on. But if they if they like it, they're going to keep listening and then they're going to come see you live. I always, you know, however they find us, I'm thrilled. With. I have no <laughs> idea how people find us. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, we're like kind of and like we do have obviously, a you know, a presence in all those formats. But yeah. David and I, when we get together, like we're writing an album and we put it out on a piece of plastic because that's the format that we kind of understand. Mm -hmm. Well, I found you guys on it was like a compilation, Youth Gone Wild, uh, Hair Metal or something. And I think it had the song. I want to say it was Hollywood. And I was like, oh, that's a good song. And then but I don't even think I could buy your other albums back. And this was like ninety nine or something. I don't think the other albums were out for sale. And so I was. But then when I, I I think I also heard a couple songs on on Sirius. They got the hair nation. They, I think they played a, a couple of your radio hits and I was like, Oh, these are great songs. And now that Spotify is out, like for me, it's easy. Cause I can just go, Oh, I can listen to the whole album. And I love it. It is great. But, and you know, I mean, I listen to, I'm a Pandora guy and I'll listen to junkyard radio and hear interesting things that I'm like, Oh, I haven't heard that one before, in a long time. So yeah, they, 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 you can get the full breadth of the band's career very quickly you absolutely know, the stuff to the very first stuff even obscure stuff you know because they pull from every label source that they can get you know so mm-hmm. it's, it's not like you have to just go through the geffen or go through after you can hear the whole the whole kit and caboodle if you're so in- interested yeah for sure yeah so i mean the band's had ups and downs um david i wouldn't normally bring this up but i did hear you talk about it in other interviews um is it true that you you spent time in a homeless shelter or like salvation army at some point for a few months in like 2012 yeah i did what happened i uh, I, um what happened that was a long time ago um i went into rehab and uh the the place i was living 
didn't want me back. So I needed a place to stay and the Salvation Army was there. And yeah, I lived there for three months. Wow. That was real. So, I mean, it seems like the, the, I don't know, in my lifetime, I'm sure you guys have seen it too, just the, the issues with the homeless. I mean, it, it seems like it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And I like to hear about, you know, stuff like this. I want to get somebody's opinion who's actually been there. So you were in a bad place. You went to Salvation Army, which was able to help you out. But what do you think, what, or what did help? Was it going to Salvation Army, the thing that like helped you get back on your feet or what helped you get back? Cause obviously you're not homeless now. So what helped you get out of that? And how do we well, help no. these people? I mean, it was definitely, I mean, you know, I drop a quarter in that red can outside of the Albertsons every time Christmas rolls around. Um, I, I needed someplace and they were there and I thanked them for that. Um, I, I got out. Uh, Brian Baker actually gave me some money to get back on my feet and, and get out of there and, uh, you know, rent a room somewhere. But uh things aren't that much easier. I mean, I'm living in a garage right now, <laughs> you know, just cause you got to do what you got to do in these times. Um, life takes you different places and you just got to deal with it, whatever it is. Oh, okay. So, I mean, you're still trying to, uh, get back on top. Well, I mean, what's on top. I, I don't know. I'm trying to, you know, keep a roof over my head and, uh, keep food on the table like oh. everybody else. Okay. Yeah. On top. I mean, I don't know what that means anymore. I mean, I'd love to be on top. Sure. I mean, yeah. Well, the roof of stairs. <laughs> well, I mean, you've made, it's just, you have so much talent. I mean, is there something else that, that you would want to do within music, like as a producer or a songwriter or. No. no, no. I like what I do here in junkyard. I mean, I, you know, like Clint Eastwood said, man's I got to know his limitations. I've been blessed with, uh, you know, Chris was, had a lot of great ideas. Tim is a great songwriter. You know, I surround myself with talented people um, to convey my own talents. Yeah. Well, and you had an interesting quote. You said you actually said that you're glad uh, that you didn't end up like Axl Rose, or uh, you wouldn't have made the record that you made in 2017, the the High Water, because you're still hungry and you have the drive for success. Well. And I, I don't want Axel to <laughs> misunderstand what I meant. I was that wasn't a disrespecting him. No, 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 I, no. If I had been given that much spotlight and that much money at that time in my life, it wouldn't have ended well. And I know that. And in 2017, you know, that was 26 years after the first record. Mm -hmm. So, and we hadn't been together the whole time. So there wasn't a lot of time for exploration or, you know, finding a new direction for the band. We just started where we, where we, you know, we picked up where we left off, you know, three chord rock and roll, try to write a three minute song that affects somebody. Um, where as Axel had to, you know, do a, you know, an answer to uh, appetite for destruction and it was use your delusion and, I love Personally, those albums. I hadn't heard the whole album or both of them uh, ever. I saw a, a video for one of their, it was a November rain or one of them, but it went on for like seven minutes and there was dolphins and <laughs> whales. and, and That's I, a strange. Like, what happened to Appetite? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Use your illusion. So they definitely. I'm thankful that we didn't have that like difficult, like, 
jazz progression stage <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> yeah, every well, every band's different for sure. You guys like stick to your guns. I like that. Um, so one of the songs you co-wrote uh, to the wheels fall off with Charlie Star, uh, Star of Blackberry Smoke, and and he was actually the one that reached out to you guys, right? That wasn't a um, it wasn't a co-write. He wrote that song. Oh, he wrote um, the full song. Okay. Yeah, Brian Baker had a relationship with him previous, and uh, they were somewhere talking about something, and uh, he gave the song to Brian okay. to present to us. He said, "Okay, hell yeah." Thanks. That's cool. What other fans do you guys have? I mean, I'm hearing Super Suckers, Blackberry Smoke. I mean, all the good ones. Tom <laughs> White, um, Nina Simone, um, Elvis Presley. They all love us. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, tell me about uh, Clay Anthony, the the original bass player. He left the band in '91. Uh, he had some issues, but and he, sadly, he died in a car accident just recently. But Somebody, one of you guys said in in an interview that he had actually cleaned up and helped a lot of people later in life, which is really cool to hear. But back in the day, like, is there stories or memories you have of him? Like, I heard he was a little bit of a wild man or. (laughs) Clay was the, Clay was what we projected ourselves as. Clay, you know, you know, we were like street rock, you know, dirty, kind of gritty, kind of checkered lifestyle. Clay was that. He was the real shit. He was the, you know, he had been in jail. I mean, you know, maybe one, you know, a couple of us have been in jail a night or two, but Clay, Clay was the real deal. So he gave us that street credibility in my mind. Like, he, and, uh, yeah. Didn't you say he protected the bus? Like he was like the bouncer for the bus. Like uh, people, if people well, tried to, I mean, it's sort of in general, but I mean, there was one particular night in uh, outside of Cleveland, we had a show and one of our, roadies had stolen a, an eight ball from the from the uh, pool table at the bar and so three bouncers came up as we were you know we'd loaded up all our gear and we were you know ready to take off and uh these two or three bouncers charged through the uh bus door you know, demanding that we return the uh, eight ball and Clay instantly went into like prison mode, like respect my <laughs> space and, and put a kick to the guy's chest. The first guy that tried to enter the bus, he kicked him in the chest and like sent him out sprawling. And we, we U-turn and, you know, kicked up gravel getting out of the parking lot. Out there. Jeez. But you know, Clay turned around and collected himself. He's like, you know, you don't disrespect the bus. You don't come into our home, you know, but he was just that guy, you know, he was real. That's crazy. So the, you had a crazy story too, though. I heard you talking about the, the song, uh, hands off the lyrics for that are yeah. not fiction. The, the, the girl really ran over your foot, uh, with a car and choked you. Well, it was just a Honda. It was a small car. We were having <laughs> That's still a, a car party. though. She was in the driver's seat and I was in the window. And so, yeah, my foot was in the way, but yeah, that's all true. I mean, it's, you know, I, I feel like you can't write a song without having some sort of personal experience or some sort of connection, you know, or else you're singing hollow, you know? So those are, that's what I hear too, that a lot of the best songs are coming from a place of pain, usually not, not when you're really happy and you want to share that. It's usually when you're like pissed off at the world or depressed or something. Right. I guess Farrell or that guy who wrote 
don't worry, be happy, write songs when they're in a good mood. But most of my stuff and a lot of stuff, I think comes from bad experiences and, you know, things that you experience that aren't that fucking fun to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, but those ring true. And is that cathartic to write those songs? Like you feel better after oh, yeah. writing it? Well, for a few minutes <laughs> till the next, till the next thing happens. <laughs> well, what's, what's going on now with junkyard? Are you guys writing new stuff? Slowly, but yeah, so, we, we have probably been, half an album. Oh yeah. We have, we have a single that we're finishing. Um, it's about being mastered art, things like that, which we're, we're going to put out <laughs> as soon as the label gets it together and we have a release date we'll announce. It's a good A and B, two, an A and B side. We'll make a video and do, and we're pressing seven inches and all that stuff. And that, in theory, is going to lead into an al- a full blown album. Okay. So like how we did High Water, which had Faded come out before it, and then mm. the album kind of followed it up. It'll be a closer follow up. We're hopefully going to have it out in 21. But yeah, we're, you know, writing, we don't, since there's kind of a, conglomeration of writers for junkyard you know david principally the lyricist and with everyone pitching in and music coming from different sources whether brian still contributes some and or i do it you know so it's it's the pace of it it's not like one guy sitting down and writing 12 songs it's kind of a bunch of guys when we can get in the same room coming to a place and finding it so the songwriting process can be a little bit i don't know slower than some bands i don't know but we're also very quality conscious as well you know it's mm-hmm. We want it to be great. You know, we spent a long time in Can, between, you know, the yeah. first, the uh, six, sevens, and nines and high water. We knew that had to be, make a real statement. And so now we're essentially following up high water, which I guess made a statement. So we're, we're you know, but what's coming along, first of all, the single's really good. The single's like a, you know, there's a bit of, I try we try to move the ball a little bit forward musically mm-hmm. and touch, you know, try different things a bit within staying within the parameters of what the band is really about. We're not yeah, interested in, um, like David says, going through a jazz phase. So <laughs> the single's very strong. And then the, the, the stuff that's coming up for the next record is already shaping up really well. So I think it's going to be good. We're about halfway there, but you know, we're also a band that does well when we start to have deadlines. So when the single comes out, that'll start to really put a yeah. fire under ass to, to circle down, circle in and, the, uh, there are other ideas floating that haven't been kind of polished up enough to really say they exist as a song yet, but there's other good stuff floating around that we're going to. Okay. We'll there's two or three years of ideas floating around yeah. that are, that have yet to become concrete, but I have no doubt that they will be concrete yeah. by the end of the day. And so this, once we start getting deadlines, we tend to rally a bit more and, and know we have a time frame because you start in theory, have tour dates to support it. But as you all know, yeah. we're still kind of, waiting to see how that's going to shake out. So, you know, there's still a lot of, uh, lots of life is amorphic these days. And so it's hard to really pin down rushing a record that you don't know when you're going to be able to support, I guess. is what Right. It is. So ideally though, you know, if shows do come, I'm sure. So long. what's that? Our patients have been, our, our fan base has been <laughs> patient for so long. I mean, they waited 26 years for, for the follow-up yeah our second album absolutely yeah so it's a way to we can uh, wait we can wait but uh, for our next 
so if show, when shows do come back, like what is the ultimate goal? Like, what would you guys, would you want to do like a hundred shows a year? If you just did, if you did every weekend, I mean, or 50 weekends a, a year, that's like a hundred shows. Would that be, or is that too many? Would you rather just do like 20 or 30 shows a year? Or? We kind of do, you know, depending on I mean, people have other things to deal with. You mm-hmm. know, some of us are probably more able to tour than others and that all depends, but you know, we really need it to be, um, you know, we try to keep it as, you know, we, we, we don't like to do substitutions or anything like that. So we like the core, the, the five of us. Mm-hmm. So that kind of limits us a bit. I think for when high water came out, we ramped up to be, to doing around 40 shows a year. That's and a lot. since we mostly do fly-ins, fly-ins are hard on our 50 year old body. So <laughs> I think we could probably manage a few more. Yeah. We see, you know, so basically what we do is a, 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 as many flyings as we can physically manage that are cost effective, probably a, and then a couple of two week runs, either somewhere in Europe is one of the two weeks and then an American part of America for two weeks, whether, you know, the Southwest is what was being talked about for last year before it all got shut down, but we've done the East coast. Hmm. That was the year before that. So I think we kind of, you know, knowing with a record out, we knowing it's probably a two or three year cycle of, supporting that record with minimum of 30 high end. I think we've, the most we've ever done is 50 shows in a year since we've been back. I think we did one year we had 50 plus. Okay. And that's probably a boat thrown in there too. I mean, I know there's talk about us being on the boat in 22. That'd be fun. I don't know if that counts as how many shows that counts as, but it's five (laughs) days of travel. Okay. For us. That pays well though. Right. I mean, it's totally like, that's like, that's the prime gig to get at this point is, I guess, I guess, I mean, you know, our our feeling was we like to play. So yeah. if we're going to be out for five days, I'd like to play for five days, and you only play a couple times. So um, that was my only, I like playing. You know, um, I don't even remember what we got paid last time. I can't. I couldn't even tell you. you okay. I, mean? I see what I see what uh, comes in the envelope when we get home two weeks later, and I'll, then I know how much we made. But it's fun you know? too, right? It's when like a vacation. We, when we do these weekend things, and we say, um, you know, cost effective. It doesn't mean we turn down gigs because we're not they're not offering us enough money. It's we're trying to cover hotel bills and right. uh, rent a car and that kind of thing. You so, can't lose money. I mean, there, there's there's tours where we come out. You know, I might make a couple hundred bucks seriously after yeah. expenses. And, yeah, yeah, after expenses. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's not it's a lot of the game. And you could you you know. The merch doesn't show up and your whole tour is Fukata. I mean, we've had things like that happen. Entire we had a whole tour of Spain, remember, and the t shirts got lost and like, well, there was oh, our no. profit. You know, and shit like that happens. Oh, that you just sucks. have to go, okay, well, we're here. You know, what are you gonna do? So yeah. um yeah, it's love the, of the game. What's it's that? Love of the game. It's part of the game, yeah. It's love of the game more than the prospect of actually making money out of this whole deal yeah yeah no i got gotcha. you that's cool i love the music and um, i look forward to new stuff I'd, lo- I'd love to see you guys live i i've heard i've never seen you live but i've heard rumors that uh you guys are pretty good live so that would be fun to see a live show Especially we're definitely a live band yeah i mean to really get junkyard you have to see us live yeah absolutely well i do like it's to end the- what's that it's all about the energy. It's all uh, for you know, sure. Our live show is our bread and butter. That's what we are. Yeah. Well, definitely let me know if you, if you come to Phoenix, I'll, I'll come and see you. Or even if you're like nearby, sometimes I drive to Vegas. I've driven to, I drove to uh, Denver to see uh, dangerous toys one time. It was, it was a blast. I had fun though. Is the Mason jar still there? Ah, I don't, I forget what it was called. No, but I've heard of that. I feel like that's like a legendary club, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, it was. That's cool. Yeah, was. Well, I like to end each episode with a charity. And uh, I think you guys had mentioned, uh, somebody mentioned Meals on Wheels. Is that the one you want to give a shout out to? Or is there another one that's... I would, uh, actually, I would say if you would go on our on the Junkyard Facebook page, there's a GoFundMe for Clay Anthony's daughter. And if you were going to donate oh, to anything like that, okay. there's a... There's a uh, there's you can click go to junkyard blues or you can go to our facebook page there'll be links there how old is his daughter how old is she david eight or nine i don't remember yeah i don't remember so that's just a tragedy because he had cleaned up his life and he and then he it's like sam kinnison sam kinnison went got totally sober cleaned up his life and then he got hit by a drunk driver yeah, it was, I mean, it's just the whole thing's tragic. You know? Yeah. It was awful. And, you know, we luckily got to see him. We played some awful show in Orange County down here. <laughs> it was in a horrible, I mean, it was just like one of those nights where you're like, oh. And then Clay Anthony showed up, and we hadn't seen him for years. And um, I hadn't seen him, and I'd never even played with him. Oh. And so we had him come up and sit in with us on the song Texas and, you know, he was all smiles and in great spirits. And he's, mm. we sat in the, it wasn't even dressing. It was one of those places where you just basically sit out back and, you know, but we were able to tell war stories to each other and talk about, you know, it was that's great cool. to see him and he was in good spirits. And yeah. that's the last any of the song, mm. you know, as well. So yeah. at least, but we, it was nice. We all had a chance to really kind of, I don't know, put a bow on it. Yeah, absolutely. Time, of course, but you know. I, I hadn't had a close connection with Clay since he departed the band. Yeah. Um, but there was no animosity or anything like that. Hmm. You know, things happen. But it was great to see him then, and it was tragic to hear what happened. Yeah, no, it is. Well, I hope that you guys have more good fortune in the future and uh, hopefully lots of new shows, and I look forward to new music. So thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. for having us. All right. It's been, it's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you, Chuck. So in a nutshell, that's the story of the band Junkyard. I'm sure there's a lot more to tell, but that should be enough to pique your interest and check out their music or see them live. And if you're a fan already, then I hope you learned something new as well. Thank you so much to Tim and David for coming on. Make sure to follow them on social media to stay up to date with new music and tour dates and also some cool throwback pics that they post. Like I said earlier, Mother Love Bone, they they posted a picture of uh, them, uh, or sorry, it was Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone wearing a Junkyard t-shirt. Very cool. And while you're on Instagram and Facebook, or Twitter, or whatever, give me a follow to keep up with new podcast episodes coming out, or check out some of the other interviews I've done already, like with Tora Tora, Dangerous Toys, so many more. Thank you for listening. Have a great day, and remember to shoot for the moon.